brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to Destiny. Now here's your host, Cliff Dunning. Destiny was launched oh, a year and a half ago for the simple reason that there is volumes of material, volumes of content that are, uh, cannot be placed on Earth Ancients that are not necessarily appropriate uh, with the theme of Earth Ancients, ancient known and unknown civilizations, and also, just are not something we want to hear on Earth Ancients. And so Destiny picks up the slack. And what do I say? I say I call much of the material tools for transformation. But as we'll hear today, uh, uh, the subjects that we have on Destiny parallel very closely, simply because our ancestors were much more in tune with the body, the mind, and the spirit and it really appears now that in many ways they were much more healthy <laughs> and they cared about wellness. They were more in touch with their bodies, psychological states, and in many cases in touch with what we would call the gods. And this can be the unconscious self, the higher self. It could be ancestors on the other realms who have passed over. It could be ETs, it could be actual entities or an unseen consciousness that came through in the form of channeled material, came through in the form of writings, automatic writings, whatever you want to call them. And then today, it came through in the form of dreams. We're going to talk about uh, dreams in a way you've never heard about today, and I have to say, I got a bit of an education 
in the fact that uh, I didn't know that ancient societies actually had temples to sleep. Uh, they, they call them sleep or dream temples. And what makes these uh, temples unique is that there were initiative rites where you went through a process of uh, detoxing and clarification, uh, fat, in some cases fasting and uh, ceremony and praying to the gods for, for visions, for uh, good dreams and so forth and so on. And as you'll hear today, it really seems like we're missing something when it comes to our dreams. We're missing a field of study. Now, I mean, we've had people on the program, and I know of experts who have studied lucid dreaming. Uh, Stephen LeBurge at Stanford University was a regular contributor, a regular speaker at a number of conferences that I uh, was a program director in in the late 1990s, even to, into the early 2000s. And there's others, you know, there's sleep clinics. Now, a lot of those clinics are more therapeutic for people who are not able to sleep correctly, who are having uh, sleep issues. And, and when you don't sleep, it can wreak havoc with your body. It can wreak havoc with your ability to think and process clearly. But I'm looking at it today from more of a body, mind, and spirit point of view, and more on the spirit side, in contacting and working with this higher level of consciousness that we call dreams. And the more I think about it, again, the more it seems like this needs to be studied uh, as a consciousness, a level of consciousness that we automatically fall into when we lose consciousness in the uh, level of sleep. Now, people have been tested over the years, and there's been various books written on the level of lucidity or, or lucid dreaming. And of course, for me, I know I dream, but I just can't re remember my dreams. I, I, probably, I definitely sleep through them. Occasionally, if they're profound, I'll write them down. And that's just the bottom line is you've got to write them down. You have to have a um, some kind of a recording device to to uh, get the information down so that you remember those, those dreams. And that's where it's really critical. When you remember the dreams, there is a form of, of therapy involved with that. And that can get into dream interpretation. It can, you know, get into, well, I mean, it could be something... You know, you're you're dealing with a dead relative, uh, somebody who comes back to you in your dreams. It's so in depth. It's so powerful, and we're forgetting this important aspect. I look at our society today and realize that we are so completely detached from our subtleness, from our spirituality. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about our spiritual connection to Gaia, the earth, to nature, to the higher realms, what, our, what the Maya uh, referred to as our ancestors. And I know a lot of these ancient cultures, Greeks, Egyptians, and the Maya, and the Chinese, actually uh, went through processes where they could communicate with departed loved ones, and in some cases, 
were able to contact, which were uh, uh, individuals or, or entities that were the gods, demigods, gods, and so forth and so on. It's hard to know what the definition of that is. You know, is it a level of consciousness that we, we tap into? Is it the Akashic Records? We've heard about the Akashic Records uh, many, many times on this program. And so we're going to find out today. My, my guest today is uh, Sarah Janes. And Sarah has been speaking on these uh, Greek sleep and dream temples for, for a number of years. She's written about it. And she's got a new book out called Initiation into Dream Mysteries. And this is fascinating. It's really fascinating. I, I wasn't sure uh, about having another person uh, talk about dreams because we've had one or two people. But this is really the perfect topic. In fact, it, it almost steps into the realm of Earth Ancients. <laughs> but uh, it's a compliment to Earth Ancients, which is what destiny is. Destiny complements many times what our ancient ancestors were all about. Wellness, connecting with the ancients, connecting with the ancestors, body, mind, and spirit. And so listen very carefully to Sarah today. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, this book just came out and she really clarifies the Egyptian and the most most notably the Greek sleep and dream temples. Now, after the interview, I actually went online and looked around for a couple of these temples, and they're actually, you know, obviously they're in ruin, but they are a significant part of their culture. And you know, today again, we only go to dream clinics when we got a problem sleeping or we're having terrible nightmares, and. That's that's how they're resolved is is going through these clinics to analyze the brain waves, and you know a lot of it's stress, a lot of it could be drugs or uh, another. Uh, and I, when I say drugs, not a drugs that are considered illegal like uh, marijuana, LSD, or psychedelics. This is more uh, a drug for a health reason uh, that that they could be interfering with with uh, sleep causing sleep deprivation. But there is something missing in our society, something that needs to be clarified. And I don't know if we will ever be lucid enough to recognize that this this consciousness that is known as sleep and the dreams that are produced in that state are really, really critical. And I think we're missing a huge part of humanity by not recognizing recognizing them more clearly and uh, working with with our dreams. And, you know, right now you can do a search for dreams and find thousands or I should say hundreds of different books on different subjects, you know, how to, how to remember dreams, how to uh, evoke dreams, how to intend and have the dreams that you want to resolve you know, a whole bunch of different aspects of uh, of the human condition. And again, we just don't think it's, you know, society doesn't really believe it's, it's a worthwhile pursuit. And so it's been a real pleasure interviewing Sarah Janes. And 
this book again just came out came out in December and listen closely to what she has to say on uh how how our ancestors used the process uh incubating is what she calls it incubating dreams preparing for dreams and wow i mean i i think and i've heard this from uh, a number of elders uh that you know it was something important in their society to speak with dead ancestors to speak with dearly departed loved ones to communicate with the spirit world the spirit animals and so forth and so on we we laugh at that we think it's a complete joke they lived by that creed they they existed and through those communications they lived harmoniously with earth and we just don't see that we're so detached from the earth that uh, <laughs> you know this is why there is a growing phenomenon of people finding and seeking out therapy because they just are so out of touch they don't know what's going on and uh, boy it's 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 really a challenge right now I mean this is why doing subtle things where you're reconnecting uh, through yoga for through Tai Chi even hiking in nature quietly hiking with your phone turned off or left in the car is hugely hugely important so this book initiation into dream mysteries is a, is a good read Sarah Jane is my guest today and Really a fascinating interview. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should, too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all.
I love the subject of dreams. I, as somebody who remembers part of their dreams, I'm always like curious about books on dream technique, what they call incubating dreams, and the history of dreams. And we have a new book today uh, by an author. Her name is Sarah James. The book is Initiation into Dream Mysteries, Drinking from the Pool of Nimose. But the reason I like this book on so many levels is it gets into the ancient history and techniques that our ancestors used on dream work, dream incubation, and also why it's important for us today to use dreams more. You know, more than any time in our history, we need to, to be working with, with dreams. My guest today is Sarah Jane. She is an enthusiastic, lucid dreamer. She's a writer, public speaker, and sleep hypnosis workshop facilitator. And it looks like, uh, Sarah, that you've been to Egypt a few times and perhaps uh, other ancient sites to do your research. Welcome welcome to Destiny. Hello, Cliff. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, talk a little bit about the research on this book. So I have been interested in dreaming since I was a child. I had lots of lucid dreams as a kid and I guess my whole life has been motivated and inspired by dreaming and dream experiences. I've always been into books about dreams, films about dreams. I've read everything I could ever find about dreams. And then over the course of the last maybe 15, 20 years, I've got become very interested sort of more and more, um, specifically in the ancient culture of dreaming, in particular in the Western esoteric tradition. So my book kind of traces the history of dreaming as medicine and an oracular art from ancient Anatolia and Israel through the ancient Near East, Egypt and Greece. Mm -hmm. So what did the Egyptians, uh, how did they note their their, uh, dreams? Do we have literature on specific techniques or... Do they describe, specific individuals describe their dreams? Yeah, there's lots of accounts of dreams in ancient Egyptian texts. And there's also the dream used as a narrative device, which suggests just how important dreaming was considered as a uh, a validation of uh, quite often royal lineage and right to certain titles and things like this. So quite often you see dreams mentioned in texts where kings are asserting their right to rule and things like this. And the fact that they've had a dream in which a God has told them they have this right is almost Uh. like, uh, giving them the red, you know, giving, rolling out the carpet to them. It's just a, a, it's a sign of absolute authenticity. So you see often used as probably propaganda text in, in that context, but that does, reveal how important dreams were in the ancient world. And one of the things that I'm super interested in, in terms of the ancient culture of sleep and dreaming, is this idea of divine dreams. There was very much this idea across all of those cultures I've just mentioned of dreams providing access to some other realms where you can have contact with the deceased, with ancestors, but also with divine beings. And you can be privy to future events because the the entire uh, body of what body of kind of texts we have with regards to dream inter- interpretation they're usually all concerned with predicting the future which also speaks volumes of the 
um, the perception of reality of time and space in the ancient world, the fact that all of this dream interpretation is all geared towards predicting what, what future events are going to unfold. It's much less about um, the individual dreamer and, you know, what kind of personality traits they have or what sorts of relationships or um, traumas or insecurities they have. It's much more about revealing the future, which I find interesting. And then this idea of divine dreams um, is fascinating because in ancient conceptions of dreaming, because um, it was possible to have contact with divine beings in this dream space, they could also um, provide spontaneous healing events and these healing events could act effectively as a placebo. And I think there is some veracity to this, as amazing as it sounds, that, um, you know, these sleep sanctuaries in ancient Greece, you get this incredible development of the sleep temple, dream temple sanctuary. It's a huge, essentially a kind of spa holistic healing center. And these were successful in the ancient world for about 2000 years. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they were effective in terms of healing patients. And I think this is because of the holistic approach that w- was practiced there, because um, treatments weren't just about dreams. They're also about purification, purging, fasting, catharsis. And so many health conditions will right themselves given enough time in the right kind of circumstances. So there's definitely uh, a psychological and uh wellness aspect to this i kind of sometimes describe asclepius who is the ancient greek dream healer god as a kind of proto wim hof type figure because he he was really into cold water bathing and purification like immune boosting techniques essentially this is amazing i you know uh a dream spa it's more like a wellness spa the way you're describing it in ancient greece uh this is wonderful. So uh, was the dream a uh, a result of fasting, uh, purging, detoxing? I think quite likely that did affect the dream quality because actually mm-hmm. fasting is one of the quickest ways to have really good dreams because quite often our sleep will be disturbed by uh, digestive processes. So when you are fasting and you haven't eaten for a long time, quite often you have much more sort of clear um vivid dreams and they are quite often lucid so i do think that would have been a part of it but also you know we can't forget about the sort of psychological priming of going to places like this where you're conditioned to believe you know there's a bit of neural linguistic programming going on here where um you're conditioned to believe that this god is going to visit you in a dream state and this is dream incubation you know dream incubation is a technique that's used to engender a desired dream and that can simply mean writing down your intentions for a particular dream that you want to have, really thinking about a particular one, a dream that you want to have, thinking about a particular god or goddess that you want to contact in a dream, thinking about a goal. Um, and usually there would be some preparatory rituals as well, such as, um, you know, a kind of ritual bath or um, a cathartic experience perhaps involving music or dance or art because the arts were considered to be very important in the asclepia sanctuaries as well um mm. so i mean they were even involved in the big festivals of Ale- the mysteries of alephsis there was one whole day that was like a feast of epidaurus which was one of the biggest sleep temple sites so that festival day was really a sort of celebration of music and dance and cathartic artistic expression mm-hmm Interesting. You use the term initiation. Uh, is there 
something you've discovered in the uh, perhaps harvesting of a dream that needs to be uh, cherished or sacred or or in, improved so we have better dreaming? I think that what I've come to understand from researching ancient dream cultures is what we call lucid dreams and perhaps what we would experience as a euphoric, blissful dream is what the ancients would describe as a divine dream where they have this kind of... Um, uh, gnosis within the dream state they have this divine revelation it's a, a transpersonal experience and you know I sometimes compare this to one really good technique for having lucid dreams is having like a massive crush or romantic attraction on someone when you're really into someone and you dream about them quite often when you meet them in the dream state you become lucid and I think this would have happened for ancient people because they adored the gods and goddesses so much when they encountered them I'm sure and when you when you read ancient dream descriptions there's a beautiful one from ancient Egypt, from a man called Ipwi, who encountered the goddess Hathor in a dream. And he says his heart is, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says his heart is like brimming over with joy and he's ecstatic for this vision of beauty. And so I think that to me is quite good evidence for the fact that that was a lucid dream because that brimming over that ecstasy, that joy, lots of people say that when they start practicing and having a few lucid dreams and they're not um, used to it often they get too excited and they wake themselves up it's a very common thing with lucid dreaming you get really excited really ecstatic and you end up like shaking yourself out of the dream so that description to me hints at the fact that these ecstatic divine dreams were lucid interesting you're very energetic and and focused on the dream state and i'm curious in your what's your definition of a lucid over a normal regular dream what makes a lucid dream so unique and why do we want to cultivate that uh type of a dream yeah that's a very good question because every now and again i'm contacted by someone who tells me that you know lucid dreams could be dangerous which i think is quite interesting and i the only way i can see that a lucid dream might be dangerous and some people do describe having lucid nightmares so they're not exercising control perhaps over the dream situation but they're fully aware and um you know engaged with what's happening um i've always found them to be like incredibly beneficial and if you are having a nightmare, it's a way of transmuting something terrifying into something beautiful, which can be really psychologically, mentally, emotionally, physically healing. So for me, my definition of lucid dreaming, I mean, there are sort of neuroscientific definitions in terms of what's happening in the brain, which is your frontal cortex is active. You're able to use uh, self-reflection, critical thinking, those kinds of brain fun cognitive functions we don't usually have access to during a dream state um but essentially from within the dream i would say for me a lucid dream is any dream in which you know who and where you are when you're actually in the dream but my favorite component of the lucid dream experience is this experience of euphoria and ecstasy and bliss and i think that's the essence of why lucid dreaming can be healing because i think that that actual embodied sense of euphoria bliss and ecstasy is a healing event and i think this is how divine dreams functioned in the ancient world yeah uh it seems to me that the lucid dream has dialed up more interactive uh presence in other words i've read books where you when you think you're lucid dreaming you look at your hands and you see your hands and then you're aware that you're in this altered state. And then the interactions with this dream 
person or place, whatever, is ramped up to the point where it's almost like it's a real dimension, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things that I love contemplating about lucid dreaming is you become fully aware when you're in that dream state that you are more than just a kind of avatar, a body plonked into some invented dream space. You are the whole fabric of that. That's a good word. Avatar. You're not just a, a, a body in a place. You're actually, you can, you're dimensionally there. Yeah. And you are every aspect of that dimension as well. You feel this huge expansion. And one interesting thing about lucid dreaming is in terms of time perception, I've got a friend, uh, Daniel Oldis, who's a dream researcher, sleep lab um, researcher in California. And he has done a lot of studies into time perception during lucidity. And actually, when we are lucid, for one, because of the certain brain regions that are active during lucid dreaming, which aren't active during ordinary REM sleep, um, we remember lucid dreams completely vividly, like if not more than normal waking reality, because that our brain is absolutely um, uh, capable of, of, um, of storing that memory. So lucid dreams are different in that respect. They don't evaporate. That's a huge point you're making right there. Remembering our dreams is so difficult. I can't remember my dreams uh, unless I wake up and write them down. I'm too bothered to do that. You know, it's like, wait, I want to sleep. I need my eight hours. But but it's uh, a weird thing, isn't it? Because it's almost like when you wake up, it's almost like part of you doesn't want you to remember your dreams because you could have an amazing dream if it wasn't lucid and, you know, it's not as memorable as an ordinary dream. You could have an amazing dream, but there's something that your brain kind of does where it's like, oh, I won't bother because I won't remember it. And then it's gone. And so I think there might be something, there's something necessary in this process of forgetting and remembering, forgetting and remembering. And there's a lot of, in terms of the neuroscience of dreaming and the purpose of dreaming, there's this idea that um, uh, REM sleep, the sort of function of dreaming is to kind of consolidate memories and detoxify the mind, basically, so that we're not um, you know, this idea of storing memories, I find troublesome anyway, because I don't think memories really work like a kind of filing cabinet in that way. And we're not shredding um, our dreams when we wake up in the morning. There's there's a lot of <laughs> metaphors that we um, yeah. we use these days. Like there's so much talk of the human being and the human brain being like a computer. And I think that's just ridiculous. I think that we have really complex and and especially with regards to dream memory, I think it's the 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 road to understanding what consciousness really is dreams and dream memory. I think that they are fascinating understudied aspects of human consciousness that can offer a sort of Royal road to understanding how consciousness works full stop and more studies should be done in them. But, you know, perhaps because dreaming is a bit of a, you know, uh, right brain activity, those kind of like scientists that get into neuroscience aren't that interested in them and maybe don't have very interesting dreams themselves. Cause I have always thought dreams is the most amazing, they're the most amazing things the human mind comes up with and they're self-generated. You know, it's not like a psychedelic experience. It's like a self-generated psychedelic, wild, fully conscious potentially and vivid visual amazing rich experience yeah i like your i I like your explanation of that yeah i mean the thing that is i find mind-blowing is that you and you bring this up in your book is that this is a part of our 
consciousness that our ancestors, the ancients, really cultivated, incubated, as you call it, and was part of of uh, of being a human being. This is you know, they re- they review their dreams, they interpret their dreams, they cultivate their dreams, and this is really part of being a human being. And we've lost all that. I think it's also super tied in to ideas about um, the divine and about other worlds and afterlives. And I suspect that dreaming inspired religion because, you know, one of the most fascinating things about dreaming is that, you know, if you've ever lost anyone that you really loved, if someone you've loved died, many, many people have beautiful encounters with their deceased relatives and they're incredibly meaningful for them. And that's one of the most striking aspects of dreaming and i do think that for ancient ancestors who didn't have this sort of reductionist materialist worldview would have thought that to be really really powerful evidence of the existence of some realm which is accessible through dreams where they can contact and that the ancestors and deceased people are continuing in this realm so I, i honestly do think that it inspired essentially religion because religion comes out of these death cults and afterlife beliefs and i think that's why dreams were so important because you know another thing to consider is just the idea of a dream in itself in the ancient world is different to the way we see dreams in some circumstances dreams were considered to be like actual personified beings like spirit beings that could fall upon you and this is why people were so terrified of nightmares in the ancient near east or in ancient anatolia you have this idea that a lot of nightmares will shorten your life um in egypt there's this idea that sounds like it describes sleep paralysis really well of a of a sleep demon falling on you in the night and kind of putting pressure on your body um And then in uh, Greek mythology, you have the oneroi. So you have these personified dream spirits that um, can be sent to you. So you can send a dream to someone as a kind of personified spirit body, and that can get into that dreaming person. So, you know, dreams are amazing for, you know, texts about dreams are amazing for revealing um, ancient ways of perceiving the world, reality, consciousness, dreams, and life and death so i you know mm-hmm. and also apart from those kind of um uh propaganda dream narrative type of texts where they've you know a king has used a dream as an excuse for like taking over a country for example um dreams are a very honest window into what people were going through in ancient times as well because there's no point in lying about a dream that you've had if you're going to a dream interpreter to interpret it so this really goes to show like the sort of hang-ups the concerns the interests of these people in very ordinary um in a very ordinary mundane way yeah interesting uh on the cover of your book you have uh and in, actually in the opening of your book you describe a uh, different egyptian symbology there's two hands uh together and then there's a, a circular uh symbol these are initiation symbology talk a little bit about that and and how the reader uh is almost uh taken into this very ancient technique of uh, of uh, perhaps incubating uh, a dream. So um, my book is called 
initiation into dream mysteries, drinking from the pool of Mnemosyne. And Mnemosyne is an ancient Greek goddess, and she is the personification of remembrance, of eloquence. She is the daughter of heaven and earth, and she is the mother of all of the muses. So she is essentially the source of all divine inspiration in the world, which is interesting that she's so important in sleep rituals in the ancient Greek sleep temples. She was the goddess that you would invoke as part of your final ritual. So the symbol on the front of my book is the Heka symbol, which is an ancient Egyptian hieroglyph. And this shows the symbol of the car, which is the the creative force of an individual. It's a part of the um, ancient Egyptian conception of an individual as you know you probably know there's the bar the car the ak the kabit there's all these different components to mm-hmm. um, an ancient Egyptian individual that upon death they kind of separate and the bar is a, um, a human-headed bird and can fly off and the car is this sort of um activating principle so the symbol on the front um, combines the car symbol, which is this activating force, the will, and the symbol of twisted flax, the he symbol. And this is part of the word for eternity. And together they make the word heka, which is uh, interpreted as ancient, is ancient Egyptian magic. And this is really about manifestation, like creative manifestation of creating form out of um, thought and will and desire. So it's a sort of beautiful symbol for me and, um, and a beautiful idea. So I really wanted to, I'm really pleased that, um, that was put on the front cover of the book, actually. Actually, your publisher is my publisher in Inner Traditions. Uh, actually, your, your cover is nice. I really like it. It's, uh, distinct. Uh, Thank you. they tended to strong arm certain people. I got my, my cover was changed a little bit. So congratulations on that. Let's talk about dream incubation. I don't remember my dreams. What are your suggestions for somebody who's listening to you and going, you know what? I like what Sarah's saying, but I sleep and I don't remember anything. When I wake up, that's it. <laughs> so what, what, what did you suggest somebody do to be, begin to cultivate dreams? And in a minute, we're going to talk about how to reach out and get you know, healing and prophecy and so forth. But let's start with, with incubation. Well, I've got billions of tips for good sleeping and I'm noticing more and more people have absolutely terrible sleep hygiene and they don't even realize they're doing that. So they'll go to sleep with their lights on or their clothes on or their phone on their pillow, stuff like this, which I find insane. So I have to sleep in a pitch dark room. It has to be really quiet. I need fresh air. I need no, I'm, I am a massive campaigner against memory foam mattresses. I think they're the devil's work. So Why? no memory. Why? What, what's wrong? With I the... think they make people too hot. They oh. um, change movement. There's no airflow through, through them. And there are all these kind of excuses from manufacturers because essentially I think so many of these products are made from like, um, uh, like byproduct waste and stuff like this. So there's a real incentive to get these products in the market, but, 
anything, you know, I, I like the classic spring and wool um, mattresses. I just think they, they're unbeatable. Um, and I always have natural bedding as well. I have linen. I, I'm, it's sat, you know, it's, I'm very, very fussy. Like I very, I'm very annoying for my friends if I ever want to stay over anyone's house. I also have <laughs> a weighted eye pillow, which is one of the most fantastic instantly, um, calming little tricks that I've learned recently. I've never used, I'd never used one until about a year ago. And I'm like, you know, when they say, if you put like a dog in a sack, it suddenly just calms down. I feel like that. <laughs> I just feel really, really relaxed by having an eye pillow on. Um, I want to just but, stop you for a minute because I yeah. went out of my way to get a very, very expensive organic mattress, organic pillows, 100% cotton sheets and everything, but it puts me to sleep. So I'm like dead to the world. <laughs> and I'm wondering if it's like overkill. Now I'm like bypassing the dream and getting, you know, my life isn't that stressful, but still, you know, like anybody else, I have stress. Yeah. So when I'm in bed, I'm like gone. So maybe yeah, that's well, just that, the, go ahead. That's good. I think you probably just need to sleep for longer because your brain and body prioritize deep sleep. And once you've gone through those cycles of deep sleep, which are absolutely essential for cell regeneration, detoxification, they're like essential human functions, um, homeostasis, all this kind of stuff. So deep sleep's fantastic. Don't let me put you off having deep sleep. But, you know, often people find that they have lucid dreams in that final phase of REM because throughout the night we have that, we have several, um, cycles of REM sleep. So rapid eye movement sleep. And this is where the most vivid dreams occur. And as we get closer to arousal in the morning, we have the longest phase of REM sleep. And that's usually when people report lucid dreams because they're kind of suspended a little bit between um, sleeping and a bit more sensitive to the environment around them as it's sort of becoming lighter or um, slightly noisier. So most people report REM in that final phase, which is why I would always suggest to people who don't have any dream recall at all is to practice having afternoon naps, because that's one way of um, of having that light sleep that is really useful for vivid REM dreaming and sleeping. Okay, so do you suggest a intention? as we get in bed and we want to have a dream or is it more random for you? Uh, What are you suggesting people do? And in in a second here, we want to talk about specific kinds of dreams, but setting the stage for dreaming, what do we do? Well, my technique that is just always works for me, but I've, I've got a very established sort of dream practice, but I'm working, um, I'm doing workshops at the moment online for dream mapping and this is where you draw and you write and you sketch your dream landscape and as you're drawing it you think about how these different they could be landforms they could be architectural structures they could be characters you think about how all of these various aspects of your dreamscape reflect your life and how they all link up together as well and Part, you know, one of the ways I access the dreams that I want is as I'm falling asleep at night, I actively imagine myself in a previous dream that I've had. And that helps me enter the dream. There's something about recalling dream memories in particular that makes it easier to access similar sort of spaces. So for me, essentially, 
the dreaming landscape is almost like navigating a memory palace. You know, I think there's our personal dreamscapes. I kind of consider them to be, you know, I always wanted to be a film director because I was so into dreams as a kid. I wanted to film my dreams so I could watch them as a movie. And me, like our body of work, our body of dreams is like an oeuvre as a director. And there are certain symbols, motifs, thematic, um, thematic threads you see throughout all of your dreams. And I certainly have a certain dream aesthetic, a certain kind of way that everything looks, particular kinds of things even that happens, like certain stories and sort of um character arcs and stuff like this. And my dreams aren't necessarily like linear and narrative like that. But when I'm in my dream space, I recognize it. And um one of the techniques I use a lot is a technique of Stanley Krippner and David Feinstein, who wrote a book called Personal Mythology. And that explores themes, motifs and symbols that are sort of always popping up in your dreams, basically. And that's a really good starting point for dream work because it helps you map out your dream landscape and you can actually build new architecture. I think there's something about, you know, the architecture, the landforms, the places that we visit in dreams. They're almost like our personality and our soul encoded into this material dream form. And as we explore this, that's the processes of dreaming. Okay. So if we can't, if we're too exhausted or just can't be bothered with writing something down, can we record them with a little handheld uh, device or uh, talk a little bit about uh, getting those symbols that will help us remember and maybe take us to the next dream? Yeah, what I find is that whenever you write a dream down, it's a sort of interesting process of remembering that experience. And I've dream memories fascinating, you know, the experience of a dream evaporating upon waking, even it could have been so vivid and so moving. And yet still it manages to evaporate. It's so fascinating to me. So I find that even if you say it out loud, you could just whisper it to yourself or you could use a recording device. I do think one of the major issues with people not remembering these um, dreams these days is that they have their phone so close to them. As soon as they're awake, they grab hold of their phone and then that's it. You've that's true. evaporated your dream memory. So I think it's important to have a kind of slow unraveling of um you know, the dream memory as you wake up. I try to stay still. Sometimes I keep my eyes closed. I used to, as a kid, I remember having my eyes closed and write um, my dream down with my eyes closed. And it would be all sort of scribbly, but there would be enough there for me to then remember what had happened. So the journal the is, you still, words. so you're talking about a journal, which is kind of like the contemporary means of storing symbology a word or two that is the trigger to the dream is that what you're suggesting yeah i mean dream journaling is the sort of you know standard response you get from everyone when you talk about remembering dreams but it really really does work very well but i would definitely say adding this layer of drawing and as you're drawing actively imagining that helps even better. I mean, since I've been doing the dream map course, I just find myself because we are touching upon a different aspect of dream landscape every session. And every time we do it, I'm having the dream where I'm exploring the thing we've just been discussing. Like it works really brilliantly. I do dream map mapping workshops with children who are absolutely fantastic at it. So we did this, I did a brilliant um course with some kids where 
I said, let's design, we'll draw a map of our dream theme park and you can put whatever you want in it and really think about it. And I got them to just tell me about their theme park as if they'd been there. And the way kids are so actively imaginative, they were really obviously imagining themselves there. And I think this is why kids have so many lucid dreams because they spend so much time in imaginative play and in that imaginal realm. And I actually think that sort of play consciousness is an altered state that children are in regularly. So it's really easy for them to remember themselves in dreams because they're already there half the time. So um in these workshops, we they were designing these theme parks. And I got a phone call from the mum the next day just saying, like, they all had dreams about exploring their theme parks and they just couldn't believe it. And it's so simple. It's so simple of just, you know, this is why in my book, there are seven stories because I've always really been a big fan of literature and of um, writing and stories. And I'm a big fan of the film director, Jodorowsky, and I love his concept of psycho magic and how you can use the arts and how you can use um, uh, writing and film to uh, as a sort of form of dream incubation, basically. So these stories and these ideas get into our unconscious mind and we use the we use the structure or we use some of the sort of visual iconography from these films or these stories that we read and they become material to dream with so his film the holy mountain is a brilliant example of psycho magic because it's essentially a journey through the major arcana of the tarot and so you find yourself because it's so visual and graphic and um uh, symbolic the whole film when you sleep on it all of these images come up in your dreams and you find yourself as the protagonist moving through this space so this is what I wanted to do with my book is have these psychomagic chapters so that I actually did dream incubation practices to get the material for each of these narrative sections oh, wow. and my idea is that you know neuroscience shows that if you read a story if you get really engaged in a great novel you are actively, you're using your imagination to actively experience imaginatively the scenes, the characters, the sights, the smells of this book. And you have this much more entangled experience of that kind of writing. And um when we look, when you look at the brains of people that have got really into a book, they actually form new neural pathways as they're actively imagining being in these different places. So I read a lot of fiction and I love novels. I'm really into writing. So I really wanted to incorporate that. And I think it adds more context and it adds layers to the experience. Because when we read fiction, we can feel more from the point of view of the experiencer of the time and the culture. We can we can tap more into our own emotions and our own memories. So I think it's a really useful tool. I was talking to someone recently, actually, who said that they don't read fiction because they don't want to read anything that they don't learn things from so they only read non-fiction I was like I've learned more from fiction in my life than I think I've ever read you know I've ever learned from exploring other people's fantasies and and uh and makeup world kind of cool we're going to take a short commercial break and we will return with my guest today Sarah Jane's speaking on her new book, Initiation into Dream Mysteries. We'll be right back.
My guest today is author Sarah Janes, who has written a book called Initiation into Dream Mysteries. This is a look on ancestral dreaming and dream incubation and the importance of dreams. As someone who's an active dreamer, do you think that we're missing some layer of consciousness that we have not detected yet? Because I'm always curious why we can't, a lot of people, and my, me included, can't remember their dreams. And is it possible that when we sleep, and there's all kinds of occult language and psychokinesis, things like that, that talks about leaving our bodies and entering another dimension. Are we missing a part of our consciousness that is uh, been recorded by our ancestors that we just can't detect? Is it something that we, because we can't measure it, the orthodoxy just doesn't include it in our, uh, you know, breakdown of what our full complement of consciousness is? I mean, what do you think about that? I think that's quite possible. And I, my kind of overarching idea of consciousness is that during sort of ordinary REM, REM sleep, we are having a kind of personal individual dream. And then as we get into deeper levels of dreaming, because we have these deep layers of sleep that are super mysterious and, and, um, states like anesthesis, you know, being anesthetized as well is fascinating to me. And I think there could be a kind of, uh, collective deep dream going on in these particular states that we aren't conscious of. And arguably, perhaps our ancestors were able to navigate those spaces yes. and bring back information from them. So I wouldn't, I absolutely wouldn't rule that out. If you look at the beginning of dream ritual, it's all about connecting with the ancestors and finding out information about the future. So if we are part of this kind of collective field of consciousness and time and space don't apply on a cosmic level, then that's some way that we could access future memories. Yeah, amazing. Let's talk about uh, a healing dream. How do we initiate a healing dream? Say we've been given a really scary diagnosis, some physical condition, or it could be mental as well. But let's talk about a uh, a condition. What would, what would we do uh, not only to initiate the dream, but to get either a message, a uh, solution, or perhaps a healing salve of some kind of ointment for a healing? I think the gods were very useful in the ancient world because they act as kind of psychic targets. You know, if you are, um, if you're able to focus your attention on this agent that can provide transformation for you, it's very liberating in a way. It's a bit like, um, the guru idea, I suppose. And I don't know if you've heard of Shaktipat transmission, where you have this kind of instant Kundalini awakening by being touched by a guru. And certainly there's this um, this kind of covenant, there's this agreement or there's this relational transactional element where you've got an adorer and an adored person. And the, the potency of adoration is amazing for healing, I think. And um, the expectation, if you think someone's got superpowers, that you can then have a faith healing response if you come into contact with them is, is super interesting. So in terms of the ancient Greek sleep temples, they give a really good example of this. So 
if you enter into this um, sacred precinct of Asclepius, the dream healer god, there are statues of him everywhere. He's like beautiful, muscly, curly-haired, handsome man. He's the sort of proto-Jesus. He's a miracle worker. He's got healing powers. He's a divine um, demigod, really, because he's the um, the son of Apollo and uh, his mother is a mortal princess. And if you want a healing, you know, like we know that placebo and faith healing responses work. So you just need good conditions for those kinds of things to happen. And I think that brings up like fascinating questions about the nature of um, belief in terms of healing. So so you're primed when you go into these sacred precincts all over. You're seeing um, essentially kind of advertising, promoting the healing powers of Asclepius and all of these successful healings that have occurred for other people. There are thousands of votive offerings. There are tons of inscriptions that describe instances where Asclepius has healed previous patients. So you're very much primed towards believing this is going to happen for starters. You're in a, a kind of um cultivated divine space you've passed through the sacred grove you've passed through this sort of liminal buffer zone between mortal ordinary reality and this space that's dedicated to the gods it's like this divine sanctuary you go through purging you go through catharsis you make your offerings there's a trans there's a sort of spiritual transaction that occurs with that and then the final part is you have your divine dream and in the divine dream um the God may perform some sort of physically impossible operation upon you. So I'll give an example of this. There's something like this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing again, but there's so an example was say someone was suffering from terrible migraines or headaches. Asclepius comes along and cuts their head off and tips out all of the bees that were causing the migraine and then carefully sews it on and perhaps rubs it with a magical salve. And so when these kind of dream events occur, you know, I use the example quite often of wet dreams and orgasms, you know, in response to dream events, there's biophysical responses. And you could, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but certainly everyone knows that if they wake up from a horrible nightmare, they feel horrible. And everyone knows that if you wake up from a beautiful dream, you feel great. And yeah. feeling great is essentially being healthy. So there is an element of promoting these kind of good feelings. But interestingly, within the dream state, we do have, within the sleeping state anyway, we have these particular genes that are switched on that aren't switched on during wakefulness. And these genes are implicated in the processes of homeostasis. So these are the natural kind of housekeeping rhythms of the human body that detoxifies, that renew cells, that oh, balance wow. the hormones, all these kinds of things. So if you think that a healing event that's experienced as real by the dreamer is experienced during this deep mind body entanglement where these genes are switched on that do control these processes of regeneration and healing that that dream event can be kind of directed to to heal the body and promote self-healing mechanisms. So I don't think that if you went in there with a super chronic, really well-advanced illness, you would necessarily be miraculously cured overnight. But so many illnesses do have a strong psychosomatic component. And given the right kind of belief and the right treatment and just um, detoxification, I mean, fasting is hugely underestimated in terms of, um, its health impact and being in a harmonious, beautiful, beautiful environment as well. I think, um, modern healthcare 
organizations and institutions could learn a lot from creating these beautiful feng shui natural pure oh my air god these water fights. corporate hospitals are the worst i i i uh, i've had experiences in those places they're just terrible as a as a dream teacher give us a case study of somebody who you nurtured and perhaps if you can provide what their intention was and maybe give us the the outcome, if you can think of it, of what happened under your toolage uh, with the- I haven't, I haven't done um, long-term tutelage of people like that, but I do have a great example of a previous uh, work partner. Um, we did a lot of dream events together, and um, he's had lots of children since then, and we don't see each other so much. But um, he had this fantastic experience. Well, it wasn't fantastic at the time, but he was a child actor, and um he he his roles all seemed to involve playing a sickly teenager and he was often sort of dying in films and he said there was one film where he was pretending to be dead on a mirror for 6 hours or something like this it's like really like miserable kind of character roles that he ended up being given and he thinks that this actually ended up making him be ill because he was constantly playing these ill children and he <laughs> diagnosed with a form of cancer and it was it was a really really like bad diagnosis and he was very ill and I've seen photographs of him um just all like hooked up to all kinds of machinery in the hospital and he had this is the reason why I got so into lucid dreaming because he had a dream um after like a fight it was like a last round of chemotherapy he had a dream that he was like um ghost bust a sort of mixture between ghostbusters and inner space and he was inside his body shooting the cancer and he destroyed all of it and he said when he woke up he just knew that it was all all right now and he was and he was going to be okay and he's just never looked back and never went back to playing sickly children either because he really kind of had this appreciation for how you know, thoughts can affect your physical wellness. That's a great story. So he actually did have some kind of a remission or perhaps a healing. You're suggesting that. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, um, whether he was, whether he was aware on a bodily level that this last round of chemotherapy was successful, whatever it was, it made him feel really good. And, you know, that's, that's feeling good is so important in terms of health, you know, like, when we feel well, we generally are well. And the more we can kind of propagate that feeling of health and wellness, then the more likely we are to be healthy and well. Yeah. You know, I was thinking back to what you were saying about uh, somebody who's in a dream state, triggering these autonomic nervous systems to to begin activating uh, perhaps hormonal releases and things like that. There again, uh, an area of study that we just don't, engage because perhaps science doesn't take dreaming seriously and this is a huge part of being a human being is is, i think uh, the time is coming yeah i think the time is coming where people are going to start to recognize how fascinating dream is and and maybe it's going to come from the kind of sleep deprivation crisis as well because so many people are suffering from mental issues and i don't think it's just you know, sleep is vital, obviously, but not having dreams and not being conscious and aware of your dreams, 
you know, one of the major issues, one of the major factors in not having enough REM sleep is antidepressant use and cannabis use. They both suppress REM sleep in most people. Everyone's a bit different, so it doesn't work the same for everyone. But in most people, they suppress REM. So this is why you often get people stuck in a rut if they smoke a lot of cannabis or they're yeah. on antidepressants, because dreams are really vital for helping you to kind of integrate information, to grow and to evolve, to learn stuff, to face your fears. And I know a lot of people that particularly smoke cannabis because they don't want to have dreams because their dreams are terrifying. But oh there's my a God. reason. Why. Really? Yeah. So it's suppressing, <laughs> suppressing trauma and suppressing the release of these emotions through dreaming. Yeah. It would, you would at least hope be healing eventually, but it's hard and it's scary. So people want to suppress those dreams. Wow. Amazing. I want to, talk a little bit briefly and then i want to get into uh what you call sleep hygiene and then uh uh the importance of, of the book and some of the things that you present um talk a bit about uh dream prophecy is what i'm going to call it and uh i've we've had people on the program who have written books on dreams and the importance of intention setting up the dream for you know looking at the possibilities of a relationship, of a new job, or getting a job, and so forth and so on. Uh, what what do you suggest for people who want to know what uh, perhaps an, a future event or a person or whatever uh, is in a dream? How do we how do we look into that? How do we set it up? I would suggest writing something down. And this is another area where the gods can be really useful because you can address your request to a god, and that allows this manifestation to have agency in your dream life, which I find really interesting. I think it can be really useful to outsource that kind of a position because people often feel like they can't conjure it up themselves. So this is how I think like gods and goddesses have been really useful in the past. Give us a scenario um, of how, how they would set that up though. You you start your dream and you're like, I want to meet with the uh, Dionysi or, or, or Zeus or somebody, but I mean, give, <laughs> yeah, you know, Hey, take me on this ride. I want to see the, what's happening in the next 20, uh, uh next month. <laughs> yeah. That could be, that could be a good way. So it would be great to have like a little statuette next to your bed to like oh. adore the gods or to write a letter, address a letter to the gods or the particular God or goddess that you want. Um, I think it allows for exciting and novel things to happen and and surprising things to happen. One of the things I'm interested with in dreams is, you know, people talk a lot about dream characters and people that you meet in the dream state. And one thing that's fascinating is if you meet characters in the dream state, quite often when you ask them questions, they don't know any more than you do, which it sort of suggests that they're an aspect of yourself, which I find brilliant. Like, so you'll ask a question and sometimes they'll even give you a really vague answer or they just say they don't know. Yeah. Uh, and it's when you get insight that's really like, I don't know, an epiphany or, or really like, I didn't know. I, you know, I never knew that. It's like new information that I find it's really interesting. But dream epiphanies are a good point to bring up actually, because that I was recently reading a paper about, um, epiphanies when you're on psychedelic or different types of psychedelic drugs and how a lot of people when they have these epiphanies in psychedelic states 
uh, think they're Jesus. They have a kind of ego explosion because they think they're all powerful because they've had these incredible epiphanies. And I've had lots of dream epiphanies where you think you've got the secrets of the universe and you wake up. And when you sort of write down what these supposed secrets of the universe are, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And it, I think it's very similar actually to when you have, um, a really bad dream joke. And in the dream, you're in absolute hysterics. It's like the funniest thing you've ever heard in your life. You're like crying with ecstasy with how funny it is. And then when you wake up and you, you say what the joke was or you write the joke down, there's like nothing funny about it. Or it could be just a really bad dad joke, but in the dream, it's just absolutely hilarious. And I think that, um, you know, I wonder whether the body is just naturally going through these process of different sort of feelings, emotional states, and it tries to match the emotional state with some previously experienced experience of a similar emotional state. And so it just Mm. brings up what it's got to kind of uh, produce some kind of, some kind of narrative or some sort of visual experience that makes sense in that, in that kind of, with that sort of feeling and that emotional response. Yeah. Wonderful. So take us on this, um, I mean, you're giving us bits and pieces of what to do for a prophetic dream or or looking into the future. Uh, In our our setup, when we're intending to have this kind of a dream, is there key words that we should be using? Is there, I mean, you mentioned working with the gods. Is there specific gods that are noted for prophecy uh, and things like that? There are lots of gods and goddesses associated with prophecy. Prophecy and divination and, and the oracular arts are just such massive preoccupations in the ancient world. I think people, you know, we don't really think about it very often, but actually it's amazing that so much time and energy was put into working out the future. Like what an interesting um way of viewing the world that it is this kind of riddle that can be solved. And I think there's an element within prophecy where, because I do think there was this ancient conception of reality as being all interconnected. If you take any particular uh, element of of reality in the present moment, any particular arrangement of things in the world, because the world is all interconnected within that smaller microcosm arrangement, you can see the whole world. And in some um, ancient, I think the Akkadian texts, uh, one of the kings of the ancient Near East was describing the um, arts of divination by Haru Spicy, so looking at a lamb's or a sheep's liver. And he says something like, by looking at the liver of a single la- uh, sheep, I can see the secrets of the whole universe. And I think this shows there's this, definitely there's this perception of the cosmos, the earth being all just completely like this connected field of information mm-hmm. and that you can extract any other part of this information from uh, any kind of oracular act. Interesting. Uh, are you familiar with the Akashic uh, records or the Akashic fields? Yeah, uh, it's very much like that idea. I, I wonder, you know, and I, I don't expect you to address this, but it's almost like when we dream, we can tap into this database and the database can be aligned to us personally. And we're extracting data on our, because apparently when you access this cloud computing system known as the Akashic field, you can look at the past, the present, 
in the future because all data is stored in that. <laughs> so uh, it, it's totally fascinating. Okay, let's get into sleep uh, sleep hygiene. You mentioned it a little while ago, uh, the importance of not having your phone next to your bed, not having uh, anything to disturb your sleep, having this um, clean, comfortable, as uh, uh, natural bedwear as as possible. What else is important and uh, about sleep hygiene and and um, I guess I guess the term is or what we want to know is why is it critical in cultivating dream states? Because. Well, for one thing, certain sensory experiences can start to, well, they're more likely to give you nightmares. So, for example, getting hot at night might give you nightmares. And this is something that I don't have nightmares unless I get hot at night. And then I'll have um, sort of violent dreams. And so things also like a lot of people, the sort of old the old story of eating cheese before bed giving you nightmares is more about your digestion having to work extra harder. You know, and I think we're so sensitive in the sleep state that very small sensory signals become magnified and amplified. So, for example, the other night I was uh, sleeping. I, w- I went for a couple of days in Glastonbury and I was sleeping in this thatched cottage. And one of the nights a friend of mine slept in the same room as me and I always, I really love sleeping on my own because any sounds start getting into my dreams. And uh, at one point in the night, either her or her chihuahua started to do this kind of high pitched snoring sound. And I could hear it. I could hear it in the dream. And I was having this dream that I had a pet snake and the snake was shedding its skin. And then when this high pitched snoring sound started, the snake started to scream and it was like this amplified snoring sound but it was coming out as a scream from the snake. And I was simultaneously aware of the fact that I was listening to the chihuahua snoring, but also <laughs> the snake screaming. And it You're was really very sensitive. Yeah, well, apparently lucid dreamers are more sensitive to sound during sleeping, which is quite interesting. So sounds yeah. is a super useful tool to cultivate and get the kind of dreams that you want. If you have a good soundtrack, I mean, one thing that I absolutely hate is waking up with like a beeping alarm. I find it really disturbing. And um when I was a kid, I always had my alarm set to uh, radio stations. And then the song would be in my dream for about 30 seconds before I'd finally wake up. But the other night, it was actually just before I was about to do a talk. I... um I went to bed really late and I normally try to go to bed quite early. And so I knew I had to set an alarm and I don't like to set an alarm. I normally wake up when I know I've got to wake up. But I set an alarm because glamorously I had to go and put the bins out really early in the morning. So I set my alarm and then I woke up and I woke up. I don't normally wake up with the start, but the the alarm really woke me up with the start. And I span out of bed. And as I went to pick up my phone to turn the alarm off, I smacked my eyeball into the corner of um this. It's a, a bedside filing cabinet oh god <laughs> it had like a metal corner it, it plunged into my eyeball and i felt my eyeball push back and i thought i am gonna be if i'm not blinded i'm gonna have a massive black eye and i've got to give a talk and it's about healing sleep and i feel like <laughs> uh, not only do i feel like uh serious imposter syndrome but i'm also gonna have a black eye and look like i've been beaten up and um but then i was like i'm gonna calm myself down i've got one of those uh red lamps for sort of relaxing and uh it's supposed to be really good for eye health so i laid underneath that for 
20 minutes and I just decided I wasn't going to think about it and have faith in the power of sleep. And then when I came around, I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh, no sign of me having oh injured myself. So I was like, that's good evidence of the power of sleep. <laughs> the book's called Initiation into Dream Mysteries. My guest has been Sarah Janes. Uh, I want to mention to you listeners that uh, Sarah has eight part an eight-part audio that accompanies this book. I think this is the smartest idea. I wish more authors who are trying to write uh, studies or practical guides to topics use this. Uh, Sarah, talk a little bit about how these audios support the work of the of the book. So the book is designed to be a kind of self-initiatory practice. So there are seven chapters, and each chapter explores a particular time period, a culture of dream practice, of the various um, religious aspects of that particular culture, of the architecture of sleep temples, things like that. But then, as I was saying, I did my own dream incubation practices to kind of get inspiration for short narrative sections that could give you more of a kind of embodied experience of the culture that I'm discussing. So, for example, in Anatolia, I have a short narrative um section that explores a near-death experience in Katalhoyek. So little things like this that just make you feel that you're existing in that time and space and, and put you in the context of the story. And then to complement that, I've recorded uh guided hypnagogic meditations, they're kind of sleep hypnosis audio sessions that take you through those worlds. So they take you through the seven different cultures and it's this idea that I'm kind of like giving you sort of visual cues and primers and suggestion for dreaming in the styles with the kind of symbols and um, uh, visual influences that are inspired by these t- particular time periods. So my hope is that with the combination of all these factors, you will start having dreams that are reflecting some of the things mentioned in the book and that you can work with those and learn more about your own dreaming landscape in the process. Very cool. Sarah, I think uh, you're a reincarnated dream uh, priestess. I think you you (laughs) need to uh, look at your past lives because uh, you're, you're, you speak very eloquently about, uh, dreaming and the process and I, i've enjoyed speaking with you i want to mention this too uh your publicist uh, manzanita sent me uh, a list of uh, questions which i typically don't use but i did look at them but one of them and this is how we'll conclude our time together uh says you got to ask sarah this question and the question is what will dreams look like in the future and i'm like well, I guess Sarah has a has a book coming up on future dreams or something. <laughs> but curious, what? That's an interesting question. What can you say about that? Well, it's going to be weird, isn't it? Because I think people are becoming less and less familiar with the dream state, and I think there's going to be a sort of dream renaissance. Like there's been a renaissance in the field of psychedelic research and psychedelic substances are being embraced as medicine for mind and body yeah i think that dreams are a safer exploration of a similar dream sphere Hmm. and 
I do think that modern technologies like VR, mixed reality are more dreamlike in the way that you experience them. I was thinking about this recently, and in my book I mentioned the fact that uh, when we look at screens, we're moving our eyes up and down and uh, a target that's really close to our face. And that, they're the kinds of eye movements that are associated with experiencing trauma. So I think we're actually accidentally traumatizing ourselves by looking at social media and phones so much. And one of the things with virtual reality is that you're in this other world and you're looking into space and you're looking sort of slowly left to right. You're exploring a depth of field. And, um, with this kind of traumatic eye movement so you experience when you're looking at a phone and you're just scrolling, um, the this is sort of accidental trauma and, and EMDR is a particular kind of trauma therapy. It's, it's used a lot for post-traumatic stress disorder to kind of release and change your eye movements so you are mm. having more relaxed eye movements and this is a way of kind of integrating and releasing traumatic events because people can be very easily triggered. So I think that virtual reality is promising technology to reinstate dreaming. Actually, a lot of gamers apparently have a lot of lucid dreams because they are in these imaginary spaces and exploring um, a sort of 3D experience. So I do think this is something we're going to see. So and virtual reality that, headsets maybe are, are triggering dream states, you're suggesting. I think the first time I ever had a go on a virtual reality headset, I had like a, 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 a lucid dream of the same place that I went to on this virtual reality headset. So I do think that they are, they're a much more lucid dream friendly form of technology. I mean, obviously you don't want to be plugged totally into the matrix all the time, but I do think. <laughs> A lot of um, how we experience dreaming and our ability to uh, be kind of conscious in the dream space is a, is a, a way that we look at things. And because virtual reality involves this similar way of looking into the world as you would do if you were in a dream space, I think it encourages, they encourage one another. Wow. We could talk about this forever. Thank you for all of this. Initiation into dream mysteries. My guest has been Sarah Jean. Jane's, uh, what, uh, what's your website? Give us, uh, information about what's coming up, where you're going to be speaking and, uh, how people can get a hold of you. Great. So my website is themysteries.org and I'm currently running an online, um, course about dream mapping, which is, which I think we've done one session already, but there's recordings available and things like that as well. I think I've got pretty much everything on my website. I also run an online Egyptology series and I interview various guests for that. And all of those videos are on my YouTube channel. And then my big project at the moment is I'm organizing a week long symposium in Athens, uh, where we're actually trying to create a kind of alter alternate dream world. It's going to be eventually like a kind of dream Disneyland situation. But this first year is a kind of proof of concept event. So we are having artists and musicians and performers, but we're also having sleep scientists and uh, archaeologists who are working to excavate, excavate sleep temples. So it's a real multidisciplinary affair. And it's going to be in Athens from the 23rd to the 29th of October. And then I'm really excited about a conference I'm doing in Tuscany in Italy. It's a really tiny conference. I don't know if you know Dean Radin. He's doing a. Oh, um, I love online. Dean. We've had him on many yeah. times. He's out here in uh, Northern. I'm in San Francisco, so he's 
north yeah. of me at uh, Noetic Sciences. Yeah, that's right. So he is going to be, he's not going to be there in person, but I think he's oh. doing like a sort of live link up. Um, okay. And that's at the Parry Center for Consciousness Science, which is this amazing center in a medieval village on top of a hill in Tuscany. So I'm super, super excited about that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm always doing lots of different events and courses online. And um, I have a YouTube channel where all my ancient history and culture videos are. Fantastic. I also, I also have a lot of sleep hypnosis videos on my website as well. So, um, I mean, you, you, you take people along on a, uh, so they can listen to that and it kind of takes them down into a pre sleep state or something. Yeah. I mean, I like doing sort of guided hypnagogic journeys. So the, my, it's a sort of, I guess, an easy, dream incubation tool if as you're falling asleep someone is telling you the places that you're going to and exploring and that helps you kind of sink into a dream so my plan and my goal with that is that um having these guided hypnagogic meditations helps to kind of expand and deepen the hypnagogic experience and lay down certain kind of ideas themes foundations for the dream when you find yourself in a dream properly um and i find that to be a really useful tool for dream incubation I love it. Hey, you mentioned um, that they had found uh, dream temples. What do those look like? Is there so something the dream- unique? Ab- yeah, is something unique about this interior? Or I- I've never heard of that before. I'm, I'm writing this down because I'm going to check it out. <laughs> I go to well, Egypt every year. I mean, if there's a, if there's a place in Egypt like Cliff, go to Hathor Temple. You'll see one there. I'll be, I'd love to go see one. There is a sleep sanctuary in Hatshepsut's Temple of. Uh, temple in um, Deir el-Bari and yeah. that was cool. dedicated to Asclepius and um, uh, Imhotep because Imhotep the ancient Egyptian physician became um, associated with Asclepius in the Greco-Roman period wow. so there's a there's a little temple that's part of that complex there very cool hey Sarah much success on this book. For those of you listening, it just came out. It came out in December, so it's a perfect time to get it. And as Sarah says, it's the future we should be looking at through our dreams. So, hey, Sarah, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Cliff. It was an absolute pleasure. I really recommend getting this book. Uh, I learned a hell of a lot regarding how the ancients incubated dreams and how they used them, something that I really didn't know. And of course, developing our own dreams, as you heard from Sarah, is critically important. I think there's more mental health issues regarding not dreaming than there are with dreams. In other words, We should be thinking about remembering our dreams and possibly interpreting them. What does this mean? What's going on? And I I just love what she had to say about uh, the whole dream process. Real, Real fun. Hey, Earth Ancients, Destiny, Earth Ancients Special Edition, the archives, together promotes trips around the world. And we got a really important one of our annual Egyptian tour. It's the Grand Egyptian Tour, May 2nd through the 14th. It is, not only is it 
five-star tour, it's really quite amazing to see these temples up close and personal without the crowds, without the bustling general public. It's a real pleasure. I got to tell you, we're on our fourth year and we've made it very, very reasonable. It's less than half off. It's usually around $10,000, our current price. And uh, by the way, this is you can't find this price anywhere. It's about $4,200, and it covers everything. All you got to do is get yourself to Cairo. Everything else, once you land in Cairo, it's on Saba Tours. You'll be met by a representative. They'll walk you through the visa process. They'll take your bags. They'll drive you to the airport, help you check in, and then everything is covered. It is the most uh, well-designed, Level of high level of comfort, five star. We call it the diplomatic tour simply because you're treated like a diplomat of your country, your state, uh, wherever you're from. And it is wonderful. Hey, for more information on our Grand Egyptian tour, go to earthagents.com forward slash tours. Look at the itinerary. The itinerary by itself is mind blowing, it's so amazing. And we keep adding more to it. We're we just added this short jump over to Memphis. Uh, we'll be in Saqqara where this pyramid is and we'll be seeing some fantastic artifacts. But we're going to be in Memphis to see this megalithic sculpture of Ramsey II that they found uh, partially exposed oh, like a decade ago. The thing weighs almost a thousand pounds. This is the big question about this sculpture. How did they cut it, number one? And with what tools? Because it's so smooth. It's so perfectly cut. I'm talking about the facial features, the arms, the legs, the everything on the body is just perfectly cut, sanded, and shaped. And we're going to go check it up up close and personal. That is one of the many, many amazing sites we're going to see. Again, for more information, earthagents.com forward slash tours. And that's just one. We're going to be doing our Mexico tours, the Mexico, Tabasco, and Chiapas uh, tour, the ancient Mexico tour. It's going to be November uh, 10th through the 17th. That's a short one, but we have packed in a ton of material. We'll be uh, flying into Verahamosa. That's where all the Olmec ruins are and Olmec artifacts. Then we go to Palenque and Chiapas, and then we stay in Chiapas for probably the balance of the uh, tour and we see some amazing sights with guess who dr edwin barnhard he's our host he has excavated surveyed palenque which is the main site and we're gonna have a blast again any of the earth agents tours if egypt is a fascination of yours or if mexico is a fascination of yours check out the itineraries earthagents.com forward slash tours They are amazing. All right, that's it for our program today. I want to thank my guest, Sarah Janes, speaking on her book, Initiation into Dream Mysteries. As always, the team of Ruth Thomas, Mark Foster, and everyone who makes this thing happen. You guys rock! You really do. All right, take care, be well, and we will talk to you next time.